Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, my guest today is Greg Epstein, who's the humanist chaplain at Harvard University and MIT, and a New York Times bestseller for Good Without God. And he is the writer at TechCrunch, and he's written really an amazing series of articles for TechCrunch on tech and ethics uh, that includes fabulous um, work with the best-selling author Ijoma Alou. Um, and that's a fantastic book about race. And she worked in Seattle and worked in tech for a time. So Greg Epstein, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Joseph. It's uh, great to be with you. And, you know, my first question, Greg, what is a humanist chaplain? Because you explain it in your articles and you have a fascinating story. And we're going to get to the backstory uh, later on to, into the conversation. But what is a humanist chaplain? What do you do at Harvard and MIT besides the work you do, TechCrunch? What do you do? Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I was ethicist in residence for a year and a half at TechCrunch. Um, and that was a lot of fun. It, it ended in June, but um, I'll be back there at some point writing more for them. Um, but in any case, um, a humanist chaplain is uh, sort of a non-religious religious advisor for humanists, atheists, agnostics, uh, religiously unaffiliated people who want to explore uh, meaning and purpose in their life, who want a sense of meaningful community, um, to be part of something bigger than themselves, and, and to explore uh, how to live the best life that they can from a secular perspective. And it's interesting. So you're a humanist, but you're also an agnostic, because I consider myself a humanist, but I'm a Christian agnosticism, the atheism and humanism, you've, you've written that you think about humanism as sort of a secular religion. So can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's a secular alternative to religion or a secular equivalent of religion. In Europe, uh, they call it a life stance uh, because that, that sort of indicates that it's, it's similar to a religion from a sociological perspective, from a community perspective. It's just not a religion in that traditional sense of having a, a deity, having um, a sense of what comes before, after this life, et cetera. Um, and so to your uh, listeners' most common definition, I'm probably more like an atheist than agnostic, um, but you know, agnostic in the sense that you can't prove one way or another uh, through reason and science that there is or isn't a deity, um, but atheist in the sense that um, I believe uh, I believe the evidence suggests overwhelmingly to me that um, religion is the creation of human beings, um, and that that's that's my that's my w approach to life. That's my that's my worldview. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me, um, humanism is a term that goes back to uh, the Renaissance, and in that sense, it was a term that people coined for, um, it could be Christian, but something that is uh, more than just exploring the mind of God was, mm. was what the original humanists meant by the term um, in the you know, 1500s, 1600s, et cetera. But 
in the late 19th, early 20th century, people started to use the term humanist. You could think of it with a capital H. I don't know that I feel like I need to think of it that way, but the idea of humanist as being a word to describe um, people with an ethical worldview, people who are trying to live good and positive lives and who uh, believe in evolution, who believe in the Big Bang, who believe, um, again, that that human beings uh, wrote the Bible or other religious sacred texts that we created um, all of the ethical codes that have ever been created to meet our own needs and not because they were divinely inspired, but because we feel a deep need, um, given the kind of creatures that we are, to, to try to be good to one another, to try to take care of one another, to try to build something on this planet that is better than what we found when we got here and that honors the fact that we are, uh, as Carl Sagan would have said, uh, star stuff, that, that we are, um, because of the way the universe evolved, we are collections of trillions of intercollected cells, each one of us is, and every single one of those trillions of cells in each, ones of, we, each one of our bodies is made out of literal star stuff. It's made out of the, the, the stuff of exploded stars from billions mm. of years ago. And we have this opportunity to be essentially the universe talking to itself. And so we want to honor that legacy and, and do something worthwhile with it. That sounds so inspiring. And when we think about where we're at today uh, in the United States, in the world, when we think this America's racial reckoning, the world's racial and political reckoning, Black Lives Matter, millions of people um, all across the world out in the streets uh, trying to imagine a different society, a more humanistic, I would say, society, a society that builds consensus around the notion that Black Lives Matter, but uh, in a corollary way, that means um, other people of color and people who are transsexual and queer uh, and marginalized and poor and non-able-bodied are going to matter as well. But we yeah. say Black Lives Matter because that's the litmus test. That's the common denominator. Um, wh what do you see in terms of humanism and 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 race and humanism and Black citizenship and dignity at this moment? Where can humanism uh, intersect with that call or does it? I think it's incredibly important to to talk about and to explore how humanism intersects with racial justice and racial injustice. Um, I, I think that um, people, I would put it this way because this is something that uh, it still eats at me. It still it still bothers me, but I think in a healthy way um, that racial justice is about the fact that we have lived in a society for hundreds of years you know let's say since 1619 let's let's float that as the as the starting point um where people have um people have built their society around the idea that one group of people um is more worthy than another and that belief has been used to uh, to dominate to um to pillage and to to take uh more than one's fair share um at other people's expense i mean that that's it's been um at least the sort of twin sibling 
of our yearning for justice, of our yearning for equality, of our yearning for freedom, of our of our um, uh, all of our effort to build a better society. These two uh, poles have existed alongside one another. You know, uh, th- this this sense, this natural sense of you know, let's build something free, let's build something good, let's build something for all, and then you have this other side of it, this side that we don't talk about. I won't call it a darker side because even that word that something darker is is ba- is worse. Um, is something that's been used to oppress people um, psychologically and otherwise who have more melanin than, than others, right? Absolutely. Black you know, Power Movement talked about that. Yeah. Malcolm X talked about that. Absolutely. Exactly. So, so, But the point is that there's this other side to our culture, to our civilization, um, which is all about some people feeling the need, the, the, some people feeling the insecurity, the, the, the helplessness, um, and turning that into rage, turning that into hatred, turning that into um, a power move to oppress others um, in the name of their own supremacy and in the name of the the supposed inferiority of others. It's just, it's it's literally half of our culture. And, and as a humanist, I just, I want to be part of, of changing that. And, and how can we change that? Because I want to be very specific here because you've done some amazing work, these conversations with uh, Ijeoma Oluo about um, tech and race, which we're going to get into. But just as an ethicist, how can we center uh, Black citizenship and Black dignity? And I say that uh, very purposefully, because I think that the only way we can ever center racial justice in the United States and globally is to talk about Black folks and not just say this sort of catch-all of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because the original yep. sin is racial slavery, and anti-Black racism is the organizing principle of white supremacy, racial violence, racist public policies. And as somebody who's who's white, who can enter these spaces, yep. whether you're talking about Harvard or MIT or tech or Google, yeah, um, and you know you've done TEDx talks, you've done you've done all these different things, the podcast. What? How can we center? And I mean center, and not just anti-racism, because we're, we're all talking about anti-racism now. I think that's brilliant. I teach that as well. Ibram Kendi, we're all best-selling books, white privilege. But I mean, I mean, Black citizenship and Black dignity and justice, how can we center that? And how are you trying to do that right now? First of all, by admitting that I don't know all the answers to your question, but I will say that I agree with you completely on the premise that that centering um, black lives and black dignity in this society at this moment is is the thing that we need to do. And I agree that um, while you know there are perhaps important reasons to talk about people of color and about um, all kinds of marginalized people, certainly. Um, yes, I, the original sin of this country is is the the decision to particularly oppress and uh, subjugate and and destroy the lives and families of black people um and that that continues to this day and and you know my um the the most inspiring um high school class that i took um on prejudice and persecution when i was a teenager um focused on the idea of the war against the black man in this country and what that has done to all of us and you know, I continue to 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 see the world through that lens to some degree. I I think it's incredibly important. 
Um, and certainly, and certainly, black women too. In terms well, of yeah, and, and Brianna you know, Taylor. Maybe, yes, maybe yeah. that was a blind spot for me, or you know, blind spot is not the best way to put it. But maybe that was a um, a weakness in my own understanding of the world. I'm talking about when I was in high school in the early to mid '90s. Um, that maybe I was so focused on injustice against black men that I didn't see how much oppression and suffering. Um, exactly was was occurring in the lives of black women um i think maybe i grew up with a little bit more of a mindset that black women were doing um more okay that they were achieving more uh equality alongside white women and that black men were suffering disproportionately and i think that we've um a lot of us you know and certainly myself i've i've been i've had my eyes opened um in recent years, um, to the idea that, uh, you know, you can't, you can't just oppress one gender, um, in, you know, in among one, uh, quote unquote racial category without, um, without causing extraordinary suffering to, um, all genders within that community. Um, uh- Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, black women, black men, black trans women, black queer uh, and LGBTQIA folks are all suffering and they all suffer differently. So it's not necessarily a hierarchy there, but they're going to be suffering in different ways. And they're all super exploited, including our children uh, and our babies. When you think about the maternal health care of black women, uh, when you think about rates of HIV and AIDS for young people. Um, So we definitely are at a point, I think, with the BLM movement, where we've been centering those who are the least of these, even within the Black community, which I think is very powerful when you see the Black Trans Lives Matter marches in Brooklyn, when you see so many Black women like Tamika Mallory and Brittany Packnett and Alicia Garza, Patrice Khan Cullors, who are at the forefront. Uh, And so we don't just have to say Angela Davis and, and these sort of luminaries from from the 1960s and 70s, we have these contemporary young people who yeah. are leaders. Um, I, I want to talk to you about tech because you're an expert here. And I, I really want to delve into this because you've written really provocative things that I think are very, very interesting about sort of tech as a new secular religion, mm. tech as maybe the most popular religion ever invented mm. uh, when we think about the way in which it dominates our lives, but also the way in which tech has reproduced uh, patterns of racial uh, inequity and patterns of white supremacy. And it's only now in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder that white people in tech are talking about this because they have to, not because they want to, yeah. but because they have to. So I want us to drill down in a, in a big way about you know race and tech, uh, Black people in tech. This is connected to both wealth inequality. It's connected to the fact that uh, what predominantly white male patriarchal tech spaces produce in terms of technology continue to further inequity and disparaging and dehumanization and demonization of black people. But also yeah. tech is connected to the super exploitation of black bodies that are imprisoned, that attend racially segregated, economically impoverished schools yeah. uh, where, 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 where black kids are disproportionately going to go from uh, public school 
to prison pipelines and juvenile, uh, so-called juvenile delinquency. Our kids are five and six, seven, eight years old being taken out of schools in handcuffs, little girls and boys. In addition to the George Floyds and the Breonna Taylor and this murder of Black people by law enforcement. So I, 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 I've been very, very moved by what you've written in this sense. And I think everyone should, you know, who's listening to our conversation should really read your articles. You know, again, our, our guest is Greg Epstein, who's the, uh, the, the humanist chaplain at MIT and at Harvard University, uh, but also for 18 months was the ethicist in residence at TechCrunch. And he produced a series of articles, 150,000 words <laughs> that looked at tech and race and intersectionality in, in unbelievable depth. That's why we always bring uh, our audience, these, these thought leaders like Greg Epstein, who are having such an impact on the national and global stage. So let's talk about that, Greg. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, and um, you know, it's, it's true in terms of um, racial justice, that's an, an issue that is central to my heart, but I'm still learning along with a lot of us. Um, and in, in, the tech world, I had a chance to spend um, a couple of years uh, sort of embedding myself as a chaplain um, in this tech space, uh, TechCrunch being arguably the the leading or certainly one of the leading tech publications uh, in the world where um, my editor would always uh, say that my, my audience is the quote unquote tech elite. Um, and you know, that's who I was writing for. That's who was reading these pieces. And I wanted those people to see um, the world that they were intentionally sort of shielding their eyes from. I wanted uh, the the tech companies, their executives, uh, and the, the people in this Silicon Valley culture, whether they're, you know, actually in San Francisco or not, to, to understand um, that the world that they have built, that they are building, that they intend to build, um, is really an oppressive world, and and it's it's a world that um, I, I do think resembles very much a religion. Um, it it resembles um, a religion on a sociological level. It has it has sacred texts and myths. It has rituals. Um, you could even say it has a deity. I mean, you know, in referring to artificial intelligence, a, a great humanist teacher of mine once said um, they, that that they said, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe there's been a God, but that doesn't mean I don't believe there will be a God. <laughs> and um, the when I had a chance to sit in Seattle uh, with Ijeoma Luo, the the number one New York Times bestselling author of uh, so you want to talk about race and I, I asked her her permission or her blessing to talk about um, so you want to talk about race and tech and and um, is she's very uh, much a, a, a product of the tech world she's she grew up in Seattle um, she's worked in tech in uh, all of the different kinds of roles that you could imagine including actually at one point her job was to to rip apart circuit boards herself with her own hands and um, and she had something to say, which is really fascinating to me. Um, she considers herself to be either a humanist or non-religious person as well. And so that's kind of how we got acquainted. She spoke at a humanist conference a couple of years before. And, and, and she talked to me about how um, 
yes, tech does remind her of religion and a religion with a very specific kind of myth. And that myth is that it's a religion with a utopian vision, a vision of perfection here on earth, heaven here and now, but for white men. Mm. And when she said that to me, it, it really brought into into stark relief things that I'd been exploring, the conversations that I'd been having with executives, with tech workers, with marketing people, with with other journalists exploring technology, with with other ethicists, et cetera. Um, yeah, tech is like a religion, but it's like a utopian religion for white men. That's the and culture. W- and when you think about that religion in tech, um, what has it been like this pre-George Floyd, and then I'll ask you post, uh, when you've tried to bring these issues up? Because the conversation that I know that you had uh, with with Ijeoma Oluo was in January of this year, right before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, and right before we've seen the most white people in American history ever go out on the streets and publicly say that Black Lives Matter. And we've seen at the local level uh, moves to defund the police, divest from police and invest uh, in communities of color. Um, What was it like before this time? Um, And then I'll I'll, I'll ask you, what was it like like now? What's the difference that you've seen? Well, so I'll I'll start with a, a quick note of cynicism and then I'll move to hope. And then if you want, we can go back to the cynicism. Um, so the, the quick note is, you know, it's all too easy to get out and, and do a couple marches and say a couple things. And, and you saw people in those early weeks of June making all sorts of grand gestures to inclusion and to to niceness. Um, But niceness is not the same as kindness, and it's certainly not the same kind of thing as justice, right? So, you know, I don't know. Um, I certainly don't think that we've achieved as much as you would think we've achieved based on if you were just watching American culture for the first couple weeks of June. You know, you'd think, wow, great. Everybody's so equality-minded, so justice-minded. I don't think we're we're at that peak, really. I think that was sort of a false peak, sort of like, uh, you know, if you look at water and the water gets disturbed, and the you know the, it it rises in a wave. Then you think, oh, that's the water level. That's not the water level that we're at yet. I don't think. However, I'll say this: um, my own experience is I grew up um, in a pretty racial justice oriented household. Um, my mother had been a refugee from Cuba. She was separated from her family for a couple of years by uh, U.S. immigration policy as a young girl. She had to live with foster families. She came here with basically nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, my my father was um, came from sort of refugees from the Holocaust and and as well. And, and so, you know, they were both really conscious of that. They, they both said to me essentially never again and never again for anyone. Um, but, you know, and, and I grew up with that. I, I took like I said, I took classes on, on subjects like this, even at a, a public high school in New York City. Um, and, and saw myself as, as enlightened, hopefully. Right. But, um, but in recent years, I started to realize that, that for all my supposed enlightenment, I really hadn't grokked. I really hadn't taken in just how much racial injustice there was in this country and how much I was the beneficiary of that. 
Um, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I knew that I was privileged just to be walking around in, in what you think of as white skin and, and a male body. But I just didn't really fully realize the extent, how pervasive it is, how dominating it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of it for me, I was sitting on a, on a beach in Greece on my honeymoon, just the, the sort of the peak of feeling like good in the world and feeling like, how lucky am I? I, I married a wonderful woman. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a beautiful place. Like my life is just beginning in so many ways. And uh, I brought with me, um, ta Coates's cover story of the Atlantic on, um, the case for reparations. Yeah, on reparations. And I'm sitting there reading that like at the peak of my 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 privilege, literally. And and I'm reading it and it, uh, my my mindset, my my worldview is falling apart. It's like, "Oh, you mean slavery wasn't just huge, it was so huge that it was the largest single industry in the country? It was like tech is now?" Mm-hmm. That was that was slavery? And, you know, his image that he gives of um, we think that we've stopped, we think that we've improved because we're like the person who sticks the knife in your ribs and then pulls it out and then says, well, you know, I don't know why you're bleeding. I mean, I I clearly stopped stabbing you. (laughs) Right. That's that's the country that we live in. It's the, the person we've stabbed is still bleeding. We still haven't uh, applied adequate bandage. And, you know, I, I saw that that day, you know, or that one day on the beach that I was sat and I read it for a few hours and I realized that I just couldn't be the same. And then um, it was again, Coates. Um, and, uh, you know, it helps for me because Coates is an atheist and, and what I think of as a humanist. I don't know if he's used the word humanist, but certainly atheist. Um, so he really got to me. I really could relate to, to what he was saying. And, and when I read between the world and me, you know, that, that stereotypical, you know, gif of the, the, you know, your brain exploding. I mean, that was me. I read that book. I couldn't put it down. And, and I, and I, um, was fortunate enough. I was running a, a humanist community center at the time. And, um, we were hosting, um, racial justice workshops, um, along with really a lot of people around the United States, it turns out that in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, we're starting to mobilize racial justice work groups and, and um, you know, sessions and, and uh, reading groups and showing up groups and that sort of thing. And I will say that what I saw when I saw people get out onto the streets in June of 2020 was in some ways, the product of a lot of grassroots mobilizing and educating and, and, and work. You know, I, I, I realized that the same kind of stuff that I had been doing in, in my community center in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2015, you know, the, the year after I got back from that honeymoon and, and read that, um, that incredible work on reparations, um, was the same thing that a lot of people had been doing, whether it was in Austin, Texas or Memphis, Tennessee or, or Oakland or whatever. Um, and it, it does suggest to me that while we still have a long way to go, that, that we have been working at this and, and we can, um, to some degree celebrate just the, the, the number of, of individual actions and individual impacts that, that we've made. What what are some proactive things that I'll start with tech and then move into some other arenas? But that tech, 
uh, can do. I mean, everything from TechCrunch writing about this and having you as the ethicist in residence for 18 months, but to center uh, Black lives, Black dignity, citizenship, and then overall racial justice and equity uh, in tech, what can they do? And we're thinking, I'm thinking everything here from venture capitalists to venture philanthropists, thinking obviously in terms of public policy and education, hiring practices. Um, yep. We've all known about tech sexism and deep misogyny, but certainly I think the organizing principle is actually anti-Black racism. And sometimes women are hit especially hard if they're women of color, like yeah. um, Ijeomo Oluo, and she writes yeah. about that. And so- what are some proactive steps? Because I'm here in Austin, speaking to you in Austin, and we have our own Silicon Valley in Austin. And since all this has emerged, um, I've I've received so many requests and 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 um, discussed, uh, and at times had really um, breakthroughs with with leaders of companies and uh, at the C-suite level, VC level, uh, folks who who want to. Um, show up at this moment and they want to be impactful. So That's what are great. some things that you think that tech leaders can do right now um, to, to, to not, you know, to move away from cynicism and not do this as a photo op <laughs> and really get that water rising to the high level and staying there that it had been in June? Well, Look, I'm I'm clearly even even after spending a couple of years on this, there's part that I'm not the expert on, and that's the 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 policy element of it. I mean, I I can refer you to you know it, it, some of the best examples that I saw of people working on the policy, and I I've been following their work closely. But I'll tell you the part first of all that I think is is under um, appreciated, and that is actually more foundational than than working on some of the policy that that we sometimes need to get to first before we can even um, improve on tech policy and on the structure of tech companies. Um, and that is speaking about this from a theological perspective or, or from a, a, you know, a, a religious studies perspective. Um, I think we need tech leaders, um, especially white tech leaders. And, and I would say even especially white male tech leaders to stop believing their own myths stop believing your own theology, you know, and I'm not talking here about, you know, whether people should be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or whatever. I mean, that that's a separate argument, but stop believing your own tech theology. And what I mean by that is um, stop believing so much in yourself that you actually end up believing that you are the genius, that you are um, the most deserving, that you are um, the the meritocratic beneficiary of the merit meritocracy, um, because it it usually just isn't true. Um, those myths are 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 myths, and they benefit um, a certain group of people, and they were created for the benefit of a certain group of people. And I'll give you a couple of concrete examples because that's sort of a broad statement, and it's a statement that's I, I admit you know in, intended to frustrate and maybe piss off, if I might say, um, a certain sector of people. But, you know, a, a couple of examples. Um, first of all, you know, I, I was raised to think of myself as a smart kid. And I attended classes in um, Flushing, Queens in, in New York City, um, you know, public school classes where where I was I was in the intellectually gifted classes. That's what they called us, right? 
the the IGC, intellectually gifted children. And we were taught to think of ourselves as intellectually gifted children, you know, which implies that other people are not as gifted as us, right? And that therefore we were going to go on, we were going to become leaders, we were going to become uh, great people, we were going to do great things, we were going to we were going to lead all those other kids in the other classrooms from us down the hall, right? And you know, I, I believe I'm a smart person. Sure, why not? You know, I I can I can think pretty decently. Not not perfect. <laughs> uh, increasingly, as I get older, you know, I, I notice the holes in my own thinking. But I, you know, I, okay, sure, I'm a smart person. But you know, I actually have come to believe that that even um, a good portion of my own intelligence, the the actual stuff of how my brain works and and how well I'm able to think and how well I'm able to succeed in certain situations is part of white supremacy because I was the kid in a very diverse classroom with people that looked very different from myself. You know, I was the only white male uh, in my elementary school classroom who was um, an American citizen and who spoke with a quote unquote American accent. I was the only one. Um, for most of the years of my elementary school. And um, I was the kid that teachers had an unconscious bias towards and could see and like, oh yeah, that's the kid that that is, you know, that I would expect to be smart. So I'll pay that a little extra attention. I'll talk to him in that little extra way. And I, I, I really believe that that helped me to develop cognitively. Um, and And, you know, if you oppress people, for hundreds and hundreds of years, if you damage them in every way, if you split apart their families and 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 erode their trust in, in one another and the world around them, that's going to have a, a terrible impact on their ability to, you know, to think freely that that's going to take generations to repair. And, and so it's like even the, the 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 building blocks of our personalities are are irreparably uh, not irreparably, because I, I have to believe that we are repairing this. We are fixing this. We're bringing out the beauty of everybody's intelligence now. But we're still existing in a tech world where, where you have this myth that certain guys, you know, with the Mount Rushmore of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Larry and Sergey and, and, you know, what what does this picture have in common, Right. That's certain Mark people, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> and 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 so on and so on, right? Um, that certain guys just have the right stuff, as that movie said, um, and it it's part of the myth that we have created to um, to build ourselves up at other people's expense, and so I I want um, tech leaders. Uh, specifically the the men who identify with those you know, quote unquote great men that I just uh, that I just named uh, to look in the mirror and be able to say maybe I'm not as great as smart as brilliant as I've been taught to think of myself as and maybe that's okay <laughs> maybe I'm no better than anybody else and maybe that's good maybe that's good news um. You know, Pearl Jam has a song um, on their latest album, which is a really anti-racist, anti, anti-black anti racism kind of album, I think, um, uh, called Gigaton. They have a song where where uh, Eddie Vedder sings, no one man can be greater than the sun. 
that's not a negative thought. It's a positive. It's a mm-hmm. positive. And we're taught that white men in the tech world can be greater than the sun. And, and, and that's, a, that's a negative thought. We should begin to see that as a negative thought. Um, it's not going to take anything away from men like me and leaders like them to, um, to take ourselves down a peg because if anything, it will enable us to start to see that a good life is not necessarily a life where you have tens of thousands of times more stuff than everybody else. A good life is a, is a life where you feel connected to the people around you, where you feel a sense of kinship, a sense of solidarity, a sense of love and affection, where you give that love and affection to the other people around you and you get that love and affection and you begin to know that you are actually cared about by the people around you. That's what I want the white men in tech spaces to actually experience, to feel that they are warmly cared about and and well regarded by the people around them. And that is something that they're going to get more of if they can give up some of that feeling of look at me, I'm better than you in every way. You wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe called The Gift of Anger and Broken Hardness. And uh, you say, as a chaplain to atheists and agnostics, watching our various tribal affiliations seemingly tearing us apart, I long for values that can meet this moment by transcending sectarianism. And then you you, you talk about John Dewey and a common faith uh, and a faith in humanity uniting diverse believers and secularists, although you note uh, Eddie Gloud's um, critique of Dewey, he never used race, he never centered race as a challenge mm-hmm. to democracy. One of the things I've seen during this moment, too, is that everyone is longing for um, a new consensus. And obviously, yeah. every single consensus that we've had uh, previously has been marred by racism and sexism and homophobia and and classism and just violence, just all these terrible things. And one of the things I've been arguing too is that America's in the midst of a third reconstruction right now. And when we think about the first two reconstructions, um, there was some progress, but ultimately there are failures because people continue to be super exploited, um, led by Black people as sort of the organizing principles, the canary in the coal mines, for um, the racial caste system that we have. You know, Isabel Wilkerson has the new book, Caste. And we do have a caste system, a hierarchy, a ladder, if you will, where whites are at the top and black people at the bottom. And the other races are really in a scramble, most of them trying to access whiteness. Uh, That's what most of them are trying to do because whiteness produces a supply chain of power and privilege in contrast to misery and grief and premature death. Yeah. So when we think about this, common faith in this new consensus, um, you know, this will really be uh, a, a question of of h- how do we create that consensus right now? And you talk about this in terms of faith in science. Uh, you alluded to it in your other answer as well. But how do we create this this new consensus around humanity, around citizenship that's going to include people who uh, don't have a status in the United States. So that means mm-hmm. undocumented. How do we create a, 
uh, a new consensus around the non-able-bodied. But again, Black people across all these sectors experience more pain and more marginalization, more premature death. So how do we create a new consensus that centers uh, Black citizenship and dignity as part of a universal humanist project? Thank you. That's um, beautifully stated and and then beautifully asked. Um, I um, I can't imagine a better question. Um, and so I, I would say first of all, um, it, it does come down to again some of our beliefs that that the reason I decided to dedicate my life to to studying religion as a non religious person is because. Um, I do believe that the the beliefs that we have about ourselves and the beliefs that we hold about each other and about our society and about our world um, really define and shape what we then go out and do, which is the most important thing, um, what we build, which is the most important thing. Um, like if you want to do good things and build good things, then you, you start, you, it's it's very important to, to work on what you believe and 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 um, what motivates you, what animates you, because we've, we've got these myths that, that we need to, um, to address. So, you know, I, I would love to see us, um, focus on common values, common beliefs, like the idea that, um, democracy is a series of sacred acts, um, that, that building a society in which we vote, uh, religiously, literally religiously, like as if voting was a sacrament that you wouldn't want to miss. Um, like it's a prayer that you um, wouldn't want to forget to say. Um, and that it means everything. Uh, so that that kind of society where, where we where we honor the, the process of doing science, which is every bit the provenance, the, the property of every single person. Um, science is not uh, something that we should ever see as the the property or the creation of of any one group or any one kind of person, um, but but the 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 thinking process, the critical thinking process of 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 being willing to critique anything, of, of being willing to critique any hypothesis, testing, searching for evidence with great passion until we find truth, and if we then later find that our truth needs revision, that we revise that truth. Uh, of journalism and and writing um, about our history in such a way that we we relentlessly critique our our understanding of ourselves so as to improve it so as to bring about more love more caring more compassion more connection etc. Um, you know those are the foundational things that I think um, John Dewey had real insight into. But you know I also look to somebody like Eddie Glaude as having just as much insight into them. Uh, as Dewey himself did, you know, in, in, in his book, Begin Again, um, uh, which, which, you know, really works on this premise of, of a third reconstruction of America. Um, Glaude uh, is, is very much a new Dewey and, um, and, and many others are as well. And, um, and then I would say, though, that that here is where theology and belief and 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 critiquing of myth is not enough. However, it does require policy change. It does require structural change, big structural change, as my original presidential candidate liked to say. Um, and that is where I would say um, that we simply need to become bolder in pushing for the idea. That there, that that 
the level of inequality that we have is is shameful and scandalous and unacceptable. And that we have to reclaim not only power, but uh, resources from people who have absolutely hoarded them. Um, that that we need a much more equal society. I'm not talking about any kind of um, you know thoroughgoing uh, socialism or communism or whatever. Where you know, but neither is somebody like a Bernie Sanders. You know, I mean, Bernie Sanders isn't some sort of some sort of radical anti-capitalist. Really, he's he's just proposing a decent healthcare system. He's proposing a a decent um, environmental policy. He's proposing. Um, a, a decent, wise uh, tax system that, you know, in which, you know, anyone and everyone can take entrepreneurship, can take initiative, but from a perspective of knowing that they'll be cared about, they'll be valued, they won't be treated as as the, the lower caste, which you're exactly correct about, by the way. Um, and so is Isabel Wilkerson and, and so are others on that. So was Martin Luther King when, when he looked into to caste um, in India in his travels there. Um, you know, it's, um, it, we need to actually dismantle that system and build a more equal system, um, that as the philosopher John Rawls would have said, um, that takes care of the decent, of the basic needs for a decent and dignified life of each and every single human being before it allows people to, um, to hoard and stockpile resources um, that that no one could ever imagine. My final question and short answer, are you hopeful about the future? <laughs> you know that that's the, the question that I asked every, you know, I did these 40 some articles for TechCrunch and at the end of every single one of them, I would ask people, how optimistic are you about our shared human future? And everybody would give a different answer. And uh, I never had the the question turned back around on me until just now. So thank you. Um, uh, I, you know, I would say um, uh, I saw something on Twitter the other day from a, a Twitter account called Plague Poems, <laughs> which, I, you know, I have no connection to, but it was pretty funny. Um, it, it said something like, uh, you are permitted to be buoyed by the positive developments in the world so long as you're not so buoyed that you forget about the negative developments in the world. And, you know, I, I think that there is a lot to indicate that, that we're fighting back or that we're fighting forward. Um, but, um, we cannot allow, I cannot allow myself a level of optimism that denies the, the extreme pain that, that people have been in and are in and are probably going to continue to be in for, for too long. Um, we, we've got to fight back. I've, I, I feel like I need to fight back against the, the world around me, um, with, with a sense of, of, of how bad it, it, it can get and, and how bad it's been. Um, and just a little bit of hope that, that maybe, um, maybe even in the crumbling of certain institutions, we are going to build something better for our kids. All right, we're ending on a hopeful note. Uh, <laughs> I've been <laughs> discussing uh, race and technology and really humanism with really one of the thought leaders right now uh, in the United States, Greg Epstein, who's the humanist chaplain at Harvard and MIT. He's a New York Times bestseller, Good Without God. He was the e ethicist in residence at uh, TechCrunch for 18 months. Um, 
He's developing the Staying Human podcast at MIT, uh, and he's written op-eds and so many great articles that really help us uh, find ballast in these times. Uh, Greg, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. That's very kind of you. Uh, um, and thank you, Dr. Joseph. And, and you're really one of the thought leaders in this country, um, pioneering the idea of, of race and democracy as a, as a form of study and, and practical efforts um, in a place like Austin. That's, that's huge. I hope to visit you someday. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L. J-O-S-E-P-H and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.